Hello, and welcome to the West Needing Room. We're broadcasting from the Map Room Studios at Hart House, and you're listening to CIUT 89.5 FM. We acknowledge that we're taking up space on Dish With One Spoon territory. I'm Ari, and I'll be your host for today's show with my co-hosts Sabrina and Mika, if you two want to say hi. Hello. Hi. And um, we also have a guest in the studio today who happens to be one of my best childhood friends, Selva, if you want to say hi too. Hi. And today we're going to be talking about food. I've loved cooking since I was really little, about four, and recently I've been trying to like cook more and try new things and like cook things that I've been too scared to make. Um, but I've also been studying food systems here at U of T, and that has been like frankly super horrifying um, and very eye-opening. So I thought it would be an interesting topic to like delve into. So for the first half of today's episode, I thought we could sort of talk about experiences with food, either like culturally or personally. And then later on, I'm really excited to share an interview with Paul Taylor of Food Share Toronto with you all and talk about some more serious topics about food. But for now, I think we're going to, yeah, sort of talk about a little more fun things. Um, and I know that Selva, you have a lot of stuff to say <laughs> about food. Um, and I remember like a few weeks ago, we were talking about sort of your time in Vienna and learning how to like cook a little bit more um, mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if you want to maybe start with that. Sure yeah um, so I was away for a year um, and I was uh, just I, I'm, I live at home so I'm so used to having my mom's food um, which is very very Indian like when I feel like whenever I go into my home it doesn't feel like almost like Canada anymore. It feels like, it doesn't feel like India, but it just feels like it's our home. We have our food and we eat with our hands. And I always smell like food. I remember growing up, my friends would say I smell like spices and that used to really irritate me. But being away and I couldn't smell the spices on me, it used, that used to, that irritated me. And being back now and I smell like Indian food, I'm almost happy to smell that just because it means I'm home. Um, But yeah, being away, it was the first time I started cooking for myself because I think, I mean, I was in Hamilton and it's not so far away. My mom would come drop off food and it's so easy to just find Indian spices. Um, But being in Vienna and just not knowing where where to buy the food or buy any of the spices meant I just didn't have it for a long time when I first got there. But eventually I did find some food and um, spices and I had to force myself to cook. I just don't generally cook at home. It's just me sitting on the countertop watching my mom cook. And then she'll get annoyed at me and say, oh my gosh, this is burning because of you. And I'll always be like, I know you, it's not me, it's you. (laughs) You're watching it, you're cooking. Um, But I missed my little spot on the countertop too. And I'm back to it, so it's nice. Um, But yeah, it's just, I think the way that, I, I, I guess I just didn't realize how important food was to me. Um, until I was away and I couldn't taste any of home anymore. Um, but I started cooking for the first time in Vienna and I had to go to so many different stores to try to find the right spices. And I also couldn't find a lot of South Indian spices in Vienna. I'm from South India, I'm from Thummer, and our food is pretty different, I think, to North Indian food. But it was nice to get the flavors of India in general and I started cooking North Indian foods and a big thing that I think is a part of our culture is feeding other people. A lot of I think Tamil culture is based on feeding other people and having um, maybe events where you just cook a lot of food and then you go serve it to people. Serving food is a very big part of our culture and I was able to do that too and it was a good way to make friends because I mean where I was I was the only racialized person, I think, in my group of friends. Um, And most people were European and just, or just very, very white. And they didn't really, there there was also a lot of different things that went on there. And I felt very alone a lot when I first got there. Um, But food was a way to have these conversations, um, to bring everybody over to my space and just be like, oh, we're going to do what we do when I'm at home. We're just going to eat with our hands. We're going to put all the food in the middle. I'll serve you because that's just how these things go. Um, and then we just sit around. We can talk and I can tell you about what it's like my experience is like here. And you can share yours and we can make this about learning rather than I think me being like me feeling alone. And I'm sure a lot of them were saying that they felt alone, too, because we all come to where I was working. We all came to Vienna from very far away places um, and we didn't know anybody there and you're kind of stuck with those people 
but it was nice to have these little evenings where people would come over and I'll put my piles of food in the middle and we would just sit around and talk and eat with our hands and it was fun and they'd bring sometimes their own little treats from their cultures and it was a nice way to um, just feel, I guess, a part of something and, f- and share, I guess, our love for food. Um, and also it's funny is it wasn't just Indian food. I don't even like poutine that much. But I remember when it was Canada Day, one of my friends there was Canadian and she had her, her boyfriend came and he dropped off like cheese curds, the gravy and everything. And it was Canada Day and she made poutine for us. And we just had it in the middle of the table and there's like three Canadians around this with a fork. And we just went at it for like an hour and a half and we didn't talk about anything else about food the whole time it was also when we just started to get to know each other and but it was perfect I think after that we really felt a lot closer so I I like that I was able to use food as this way to bring people together and feel more at home in a place that just doesn't doesn't and won't ever feel like home for me that's it's really funny because I remember when you told me that it was like I did that exact thing on Canada Day and I hate Canada Day <laughs> and I don't love poutine um but yeah we like we couldn't find cheese curds but I remember we like went out and, and found like the like I don't know most curdy cheese we could <laughs> and like everyone like made gravy and no one no one else was Canadian where I was working but we like forced them into the mm-hmm. kitchen and we were like this is what we eat and they were like this is just chips and gravy because they're all British and uh-huh. we were like no it's different you have cheese and they're like yeah it's cheesy chips but I was like okay yeah fine maybe the food like Canada quote unquote has invented is not very good but like on Canada day I kind of <laughs> want poutine and I kind of want to be back home yeah yeah and I also remember you posting like I think you like I don't know there, there was something on some social media platform <laughs> where you were with a group of friends in mm-hmm. Vienna, like, on the floor, like you were describing, yeah. with, like, all this food that you've cooked. I remember seeing it first, and, like, my first reaction was, like, Selva made that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My second reaction was, like, oh, that's really nice. I'm jealous. I want to be there. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. I had to trek for, like, I I, I found paneer. I can, you can make paneer at home. It's a type of cheese as well. But it always looked really difficult. My mom, like, Indian moms buy their paneer. At least the Indian moms I know buy their paneer. Um, so I was, but I, anyways, I found Paneer and I was very glad. And that was when you saw, it was, Mm. it was actually my goodbye. And it was interesting because I didn't, I have different groups of friends and I don't really put them together because they don't, they don't always get along. Um, but I had everyone there in my room and (laughs) it actually, like, it became kind of intense because there's, there's this one, there, there was just one guy who's just very, just, he has very uh, interesting views on a lot of different things. But I found, yeah, it was just a lot. But I feel like the f- part that worked was the food. And it, it, was, it, was, it was great that that was there because even though that I had a couple friends who just couldn't get along and had such different views, they were able to at least, like, have this discussion and maybe even change their views on certain things because there was food there and we're all sitting around and talking. It was an easier <laughs> conversation. <laughs> And I also want to hear from you, too. Um, I want to ask you, Mika, specifically about probably, like, the best thing that I've heard of. I'm going to let you introduce this because I don't even know what, what, okay. how to describe this. Well, it's, it's just kind so of dead right now. But basically, I have, like, an incredibly obsessive personality. And I get, like, fixated with types of foods. So, like, at one time it was, like, empanadas. So I would only eat empanadas last year or, like, a year and a half ago. It was tacos, so I went to all the taco places in the city. It's the only thing I would eat. And then in my sophomore year of university, I was, like, I became obsessed, but, like, genuinely obsessed with hot dogs and, like, the toppings and the idea that, like, you could put a lot of sauces on them. I don't know. Like, I really love that. And so my best friend and I, she's now in exchange, so which is why, like, the blog kind of died down. We decided let's go to um, all the hot dog stands in this in like on campus and rate them out of 20 so yeah we were eating a lot of hot dogs and if you want to follow us on instagram (laughs) (laughs) i think it's called hot dog no what's it called i don't know i can look it up hot (laughs) dog to i'm i don't know but i don't know i i think like hot dogs are really cheap and they're warm 
and you can put a bunch of toppings on them. Also, some people are like afraid of eating like street meat, and I say you shouldn't be. Nothing happened <laughs> so far. So, I know I've asked you this before, but um, a what was like the best hot dog stand in your opinion on campus, and b where is the best place to go for tacos in the city? Um, the best one on campus is Mama's Best, which is in front of Sid Smith. And he's always playing music, like, he has, like, a lot of toppings. And I find that the bread is never stale because we basically did a rating out of 20 points. So it was, like, experience, like, if lines were long or, like, whatever, the service, uh, the bun, the meat, the toppings. Oh, so, yeah. So you would rate them out of five and then a total of 20. And he got really high up that stand. And I go there all the time. It's also, like, I think the cheapest one on campus. So I recommend it. Um, and best tacos, I think, so I recommend two experiences. I think they're really different. Seven Lives for more of a, like a gourmet taco that's not very traditional but very tasty. And I specifically like the octopus ones. They're really special and it's cash only. And then close to Seven Lives, this is also in Kensington Market, there's this place called Taqueria de Gus. And this is more traditional Mexican small taquitos um, with the toppings and everything that you put yourself. And I actually used to go to their stand inside of like one of the Kensington Market markets, which was called La Chilaca. And then they opened this like bigger restaurant that is still super casual and it's cheap and delicious. So I recommend it. I haven't found any empanada that I like in Toronto yet. Oh my god. <laughs> that was really salty. I was like, no, I know this one. So what like what makes a good empanada for you? I think there's well there's two types of empanadas. Like that what when I think of um like in my life, so you have Uruguayan empanadas that are more of a like the like the so an empanada is basically like a pastry with meat inside. And so the Uruguayan empanada, it's similar to like a pie crust with meat inside or like cheese or whatever. And then Colombian empanadas use um, use a different sort of it's I don't know what it's called like the covering how do you call that like this the, the dough yeah the yeah. dough is the same dough that they use to make arepas um, and those are I think yummier than the Uruguayan ones but I haven't really found any place yet yeah I don't know I feel like I always feel disconnected from like my culture like my family's culture I'm very Canadianized um like there's like accents that I can't reproduce but like my brother can reproduce like patois which I can understand but like it's questionable and I can't reproduce it um music and culture like all that stuff kind of evades me but I don't know I feel like when it comes to food maybe it's just because of my experience like I feel like Everyone knows about these things. And then I start, like, talking about things that I eat. And people are like, I don't know what that is. Um, I feel like food is where it comes out, where it's normal to me. But then I talk to my friends, and they're like, I've never heard of that before. Um, So, yeah, from, like, especially, like, the Jamaican side, like, I grew up eating a lot of um, patties, which people tend to have because they're in, like, school cafeterias and stuff. They're really easy to buy frozen and... and, um, uh, just put in the oven but especially when I started um, my relationship with my partner like he'd come to my house and my mom would make food and he'd just be like what is this <laughs> like you have no idea what it is um, and kind of like watching him try things that I've been eating for years um, has been really interesting because <laughs> um, you're always kind of sitting there. It's like when you find like a really funny YouTube video and you're like showing it to your friend and you're just like staring at their face the whole time, like hoping that they laugh at the parts that you're laughing at. <laughs> um, yeah, and that's yeah. that's that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know what to say. No. That's can... like interesting because I feel like with me, I always felt like, I don't know, like connected to my mom's side of the family with every aspect of her culture aside from food because that was like when they came to Canada they like very much assimilated and one of the ways that they did that mainly was through food so I feel like now I'm trying to make like Ashkenazi food and me and my mom are sort of like learning together so it's interesting that like yeah I feel like we've had very like different experiences with that where it's sort of like flipped like I made my parents like 
a babka and stuff, and they were like, I've never made this before. And it was really bad, but they had never eaten it, so they thought it was good. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> this is very dry. I'm sorry. And they were like, no, it's perfect. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I have sort of a similar thing with being half Chinese. Like, the only thing, like, going back to what you said, Sabrina, like, I don't speak Mandarin, neither does my dad. Like, I know very little of the culture. Um, but, like, something that I do, like, I have a group of friends that were all half Chinese, and, like, we eat Chinese food, and I think that's the one thing that, like, my grandparents have given me and that, like, I use as a way to sort of, like, validate my identity because well, this is radio, but, and you guys don't know what I look like, but I look white. So it's, like, through food is the way that I, like, stand proudly as being, like, half Chinese. And then similarly, but, like, also in an opposite way, it's, like, so my boyfriend is North um, North Indian. He's Punjabi. And, like, I've been learning slowly how to make all his favorite dishes. But at the same time, I don't feel like I've ever had, like, the real version. So it's been really difficult to be, like, this tastes good, but does it taste authentic? And then, like, what is authentic? And all these questions. So it's been, like, a really interesting experience that I think has also helped sort of bridge, like, the cultural differences that arise in our relationship and, like, help me understand so many more things about him. Because, like, I do think um, in his family and, like, within his culture, like, food is such a communal and, like, central part to his identity. And, like, so is it for me, just, like, from, like, a Chinese aspect, I guess, or Chinese culture. So it's been a it's been a journey. He brought me spices back from back home, and I've been playing around with them. But I don't know. Cooking is hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. It takes so much. Yeah. I'll, like, look up recipes online, or I'll text my mom, and I'll be like, how do you make the thing? Like, how do I make the thing? And, um... She'll just be like, oh, it'll only take like 50 minutes. Or the recipe will be like, oh, it only takes an hour and a half. Three hours later, it's getting yeah. in the oven. Yeah. Like, yeah. I've it, it takes so long to chop things, I've learned. Like, oh it'll be God. like prep time, like 20 minutes. And then I'll just be like, just chop your bell pepper, your onion, your garlic, um, your carrots, and your broccoli. And like, that takes 45 minutes alone. Mm-hmm. Um, never mind measuring everything out. I think it's, I don't know, maybe it's my hands or I just don't have, mm-hmm. like my knives are not sharp <laughs> enough. Um, but whenever I make, I make this casserole because it lasts like weeks. Once I literally made like a month's worth of casserole and we were all tired of casserole by the end. I didn't make it for like three months after that. Um, and it took forever to chop everything. Yeah. But I didn't want to say, um, Selva, you talking about just like watching your mom cook and then stuff burning and then her being like, it's your fault. Like, (laughs) that's literally my mom. I'll be in the living room. I won't even know that she's cooking something. And then she'll be like, she'll have like rice on the stove and she'll be making chicken and like something else. And like she'll turn to get something out of the microwave and then something will burn and she'll be like, Serena, this is why this happened because you never help me. Like, I never get any help. Like, no one ever assists me. And then they're always eating my food. And I'm like, first of all, I didn't even know you were cooking. Um, like, you didn't tell me anything. You should have um, known. Honestly. No, no I, I should have just known. Like, I'll be asleep, and then I'll come down, and the food will be ready. And she'll be like, yeah, everything's fine. But the rice was, like, a little overcooked because, like, I didn't have any help. Um, and it's like, I was literally asleep. But, okay. Um, so I definitely get that feeling of, like, you're responsible for the food. Mm-hmm. Even when sometimes I'll ask if she needs help and she'll be like, no, like you just won't, like you won't do it right. Like I just, I know what I'm doing. My mom's, my mom, <laughs> at least now she laughs before she would, she, I think she was a, a little bit salty, but now she's like happy because I'm back on my, on my little spot too. And it's been a while. So when it burns, at least she's like, oh, okay. You're here. You're here. Yeah. <laughs> what? Oh no. I was just going to add or like asking your mom how to make a recipe. And then she's like a dash of this and then sprinkle that. I'm like, I don't even know how to chop an onion. Like, I don't know what a dash (laughs) means. It's like my mom makes this, like, special lentil stew that I'm obsessed with. And so, like, when I went back home to Uruguay this summer, I was like, okay, I'm going to learn how to make it. Like, where's the recipe? She's like, oh, I don't know. Like, what's in the pantry? Like, what do we have in the fridge? I was like, but I don't have anything in my pantry (laughs) like I don't have a household to be doing these things and it's so hard to learn that way but like I don't know I think there's something really special about like hanging around the kitchen like when your mom is cooking Mm -hmm. and like I guess eventually like 
through osmosis. Like, you'll learn something. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping. <laughs> I don't know. One day. I did want to say about the spices, like, I'm on the other side of that. So my partner is, like, white and Jewish, but he's just, like, like ethnically Jewish and not, like, religiously or culturally Jewish. So, like, he grew up eating a lot of, like, and his, like, dad's white and his dad cooked. And um, he grew up eating, like, a lot of, like, chicken and, like, spaghetti with, with no, like a, a small bit of salt, right? <laughs> it was like yeah, <laughs> like even like no cheese, like they don't like no cheese, like yeah. So um, the first time he made like breaded chicken, it was just like the flour and the egg and the chicken, and I was like, where are the spices? And he was like, the what? And I've recently talked to his dad about this, and his dad uses spices, so um, it's it's it was my partner just not not like getting that. So I have had to teach him how to like spice things um and he'll just be like so how much black pepper do you use and i'm like i don't know you just feel it like you yeah. just like like no you just like just put like, the pepper in until your hand stops i don't know same thing like i'll use recipes like i'll watch shows like nailed it on netflix where people can't like bake or like people are bad like worst chefs and yeah. whatever and like i'll follow a recipe if it's like you need bell pepper onion garlic like i'll get those things but then and like i'll buy like two if it says two because i'm not gonna buy five because it's expensive but then it's like i just chop until it feels right. So maybe mm-hmm. I'll say, like, it calls for two, but I'll only chop, like, a pepper and a half, you know? Oh God, or, yeah. like, if we're garlic, they'll be like, oh, you only need, like, one clove of garlic. But then, I don't know, it's like, I want to smell the food while it's mm-hmm. cooking. Like, if I can't smell the food, then it's not flavorful enough. I don't know. No, and I always yeah. know, like, if there's garlic in a recipe, I'm going to put, like, five times more than these. Exactly. <laughs> like, I'm sorry. Oh, my God, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't know, you just, like, Feel, I'm literally that. Like, Max will be like, okay, so how do you make that thing? Because, like, I want to make it. And then I'm like, yeah, you just, like, put the cheese in. And then he's like, how much cheese? And I'm like, you just – it, it comes through your soul. You yes, know? No, you know what? I tried to teach – no, I did teach, and he's doing it really well now. Like, I tried to teach my boyfriend um, this, like, take on an Asian marinade – And, like, he was, like, okay, so how much do I put of each thing? And I was, like, well, less of this but more of that. And then, like, look at your palm and measure. And then he was, like, um, what? So, like, I don't know. I guess you're right. Like, it reaches a point with cooking that, like, especially if you're not baking because baking is a little more scientific that it – it's oh, even baking? with baking, I just do what really? I want. Oh, yeah, I'm no. scared. I things yeah. come out okay, bad. but I feel like I bake so much that I like oh. I can just like I, I can see the dough and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Go Bring us your cookies. Oh, I will. I will. A I lavender will. cookie. Yes, I'm ready. Remember the cookies I brought you guys that one meeting? Like literally, yeah. yeah. It was like softened butter, and I was like, I don't have time for this, so I just like melted it, and then it said one cup. But you know, when it's like solid, it's hard to tell like how much is a cup. So then I melted it, and it was only like like a quarter of butter. Like it was just like. Those were delicious. Thank you. So that's the thing. Like, when I bake, it'll be like, oh, only this much sugar. Like, I make these lemon squares that I was going to bring in, but then I didn't have time. Maybe I'll bring it in I'm next week. Um, <laughs> I'm so hungry. And I, I didn't like the crust, so I just, like, added – like, I just add more powdered sugar. Like, I just add things, and then you just feel it, right? It just, like, comes out that's of your soul. Well, that's the thing about baking is that, like – it is, like, very scientific, and it does need to be, like, right if you want to exactly replicate the recipe that you're making, right? A change isn't necessarily a bad change. Exactly. Like, and everything. I never put as much sugar in, as they say, because I don't like sweet things, even though all I do with my time is bake. Like, <laughs> But, yeah, I don't know. But back to what you said also, like, my dad w- is, like, one of those doesn't know how to season a single thing. And he, my mom and I will yell at him about this every time he cooks, and he's, like, I want what I, like. I want to taste the chicken. Is that so wrong? Yes, it's um, wrong. <laughs> I do want to say because this is going to be published that my partner's dad like does know how to season things. It was just my partner like blaspheming his um, <laughs> recipe because we we had a whole conversation. We ironed it out. I was like, "Sir, um, <laughs> where's your black pepper?" And then he was like oh, I use, like, Old Bay seasoning and, like, whatever. And I was like, okay, this makes a lot of sense. My partner just ruined it. Um, but, <laughs> you know, we're, we're moving. I wonder if anyone else also has the experience. I didn't want to touch – I did want to touch on that. Like, now that I have a ha- household and I'm not just cooking for myself, like, I cook for my partner and I cook for my roommate, I'm always afraid that, like, I'm not going to make enough food. Like, I'm there's not going to be enough food and then someone's going to be hungry and it's going to be my fault and it's been like all this time cooking and it's not going to whatever and that's how I make like enough casserole to feed 20 people <laughs> and there's only three of us and I find too like we made like a club size lasagna that like one of those frozen ones and then the servings between the three of us I ended up serving like half of it because I was afraid that 
people weren't going to like be fed and like I don't know I'm just like always I like turn into this like domestic like grandma or like my grandma and I'm just like are you hungry you look hungry like you should keep eating like you finish your plate do you want more food and they're like I've had five servings please stop Stop asking me (laughs) if I'm hungry and I'm like no are you are you sure it's like when people come over and I'm like we need to clean our bedroom and my partner's like they're not going to see our bedroom and then I just turn into this person it's like a compulsion I can't even, I don't know where it comes from. But I'm just always afraid that people, like, there's not going to be enough food. Or it's going to be bad. Or it's underspiced. So then you can literally, like, see the spice on my food. Like, you could, like, pick off the black (laughs) pepper with your fingers. I have that, too, yeah. Like, when you came over, Mm -hmm. um, we thought there were going to be, like, three or four of us. And then, like, six or seven Mm -hmm. people ended up showing up. And I was, like, almost, like, crying into the, like french toast that we'd made i was like this isn't enough food and everyone's like it's okay but yeah no i feel that and we also yeah. like my roommates and i always like cook for each other and stuff so i feel like yeah i am like turning to my mother like yeah. they'll come home and i'll be like do you, do you want me to make you a grilled cheese like are you hungry like no literally yeah. my, room, my oh, me yeah it's like when did we become this person? i know <laughs> no it's 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 awful mm-hmm. i like i i i don't know it really stresses me out too it's like like, okay, my partner, my boyfriend, whatever, <laughs> he'll eat, like, eight chicken thighs in one sitting. <laughs> and, like, so now if I'm ever cooking for the both of us, like, I have to buy, like, t- two trays of chicken to make sure he eats enough. And I'm, like, it, it's just, it's really stressful. I'm always, like, I don't think there's enough. And then, like, what if the rice comes out badly? So you have to depend more on the protein to, like, balance it out. And I don't know. It's a lot, like. It's weird because I feel like we look at our mothers um, and they just like host so effortlessly mm-hmm. and like the mm-hmm. dinner's always on, you know, on the table and everything's always perfect. Like, I'm sorry, but when have you ever not had enough food at your mom's house? Like, I don't think I've ever had to be like, oh, no, like we're out. Okay. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. even just that, but I was cooking for my mom. Like, it was like Thanksgiving. And we make a lot of too, like rice and salmon. We really like salmon. And I always find that like, Something gets if I'm cooking more than one thing, something gets cold in the time that I'm waiting for something else to come out. And my mom always comes. She's like, this food's good. And I'm like, but every time you cook for me, it's like everything comes out at the right time. The rice is done when the chicken's done, when the vegetables like everything's done at the same time. And I'm like, how do I make sure that things don't get cold? And she was like, just put aluminum foil on it. And I was like, (laughs) oh, oh, the last time I cooked for like like a dinner party situation my oven caught on fire <gasps> so that was like not <laughs> I just like I remember calling my mom and I was like do you think I can still do you think I can try like turning the oven on again and she was like no <laughs> that's not worth it and I was like but I mean the fire will cook the food right like I was just so desperate to like host this perfect like <laughs> you don't understand how many times I FaceTime my mom and I'm like does this look done and she's like mm, just turn it a bit and i'm like okay but what about this and then i'll like hang up and five minutes later i'll call her again and i'll be like so i'm at an impasse <laughs> she's like my like gordon ramsay on the phone okay so we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we'll be playing an interview from earlier this week that i did with the wonderful paul taylor from food share toronto you are listening to the west meeting room on ciut 89.5 fm the sound of your city stay tuned And welcome back to the West Meeting Room here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm Ari, your host for this episode, and today we're talking about food. Earlier this week, I was lucky enough to be able to meet with Paul Taylor, Executive Director of Food Share Toronto, a nonprofit here in the city which is doing some amazing work in food justice. So here's that interview. Uh, my name is Paul Taylor, and I'm the Executive Director of an organization called Food Share Toronto. Um, so to start, I'd like to talk a bit about food justice, the food justice movement. Um, for listeners who have maybe never heard of food justice before, what's it about and what does it look like specifically here on this land in Toronto? Great. So I think um, food justice is something that's inspired many of us uh, here at Food Chair. And I think it's probably because many of us have um, sought to combat hunger in a number of ways, hunger in communities in a number of ways. 
and you know many of us end up at things like volunteering at food banks that sort of thing but food justice takes it one step further and recognizes that there are organizing principles that actually hold and perpetuate food uh, injustices or or and, and food insecurity so things like white supremacy things like colonialism things like patriarchy ableism all of those things that if we want to make sure that everybody has the food that they need we recognize that we actually have to dismantle and disrupt those structures that cause um, that cause food injustices so here at food share we look at a number of things we think about um, we apply a food justice lens to our work so we recognize that um, in the communities that we work with, these are often racialized folks in these communities who are disproportionately uh, separated from the opportunity to access power and power resources. So we um, rather intentionally, as part of our food justice approach, recognize that 4 million Canadians in this country are hungry or experience food insecurity to some degree. So we recognize that, you know, for the last 30 plus years as a country, We've kind of invented these community food programs, whether it's food banks or community kitchens, that sort of thing. They actually don't address the underlying issues that cause food insecurity. And we're of the view that those underlying causes uh, are structural or systemic. And we actually, in order to make sure that people have the food that they need, that we actually need to dismantle those systems like white supremacy, uh, anti-black racism, uh, transphobia, colonialism, patriarchy, all of those things that kind of inform who has food, who doesn't, but also inform who has a seat to the decision-making table around addressing these issues and who doesn't. So one of the things we look at is, as an organization, one of the largest organizations uh, in the country tasked with responding to poverty and food insecurity, we uh, really think about how we have an opportunity to dismantle uh, some of those systems within our own work. So that's where we've spent the bulk of our time and looking at how do we uh, make sure that it's not always the same kind of middle-class white folks that get hired into these positions um, in organizations that receive funding to address issues that are, are you know, that um, folks of color, racialized BIPOC folks are disproportionately affected by. Yeah. Sort of like a political economic take on on dealing with these problems. The, the biggest issue is that these these issues are so systemic, and they're from like the very beginning of the like food production mm-hmm. to like the very end of mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. in the grocery stores, right? And yeah, you you, you remind me of another another point. Um, you know, our food system in this country is really built on uh, racism and oppression. Uh, so much of the food that's grown uh, in this country is grown on stolen land. Um, so it, it involves recognizing that and really thinking thoughtfully around how resources are um, how resources are distributed, uh, how we grow food, how we acknowledge the history of the land and uh, the impact of people's uh, immigrant effort. So I guess sort of to I guess jump back to basics a bit, like what are these issues? Like how do these issues? take form that you're trying to mitigate? Mm-hmm. Uh, so things like white supremacy, for example, how does this take shape in, in our world? Well, we have, I'm going to go back to the issue of food insecurity and poverty. This is an issue that we're working on. Um, and we know that in the city of Toronto, you know, tw- a little over 12% of the population experiences food insecurity or, sorry, lives in a, a food insecure household. When we apply a race-based lens to that, we see that that number increases to uh, about 25%. So more than double. So we recognize that white supremacy has created opportunities for white folks, which include access to food um, that uh, our society hasn't afforded in the same way to racialized folks, especially people who are black and indigenous. But it's deeper than that. When we look at these systems, we see that in prisons, um, uh, indigenous folks, uh, black folks are overrepresented in prisons. We look at uh, things like, you know, black folks account for 8% of the population of Toronto, but when you look at um, who's uh, suspended in classrooms, you know, we see that uh, it's black children, that um, half the time someone is, is uh, suspended, they are a black child. So it's around how do we actually 
uh, in, integrate into our food work conversations around those systems that act as pipelines to poverty and hunger? Um, how do we disrupt things like white supremacy? So um, one of the things we do, I'm jumping around a little bit, but when it comes to our hiring process, you know, we have thought long and hard about how we um, how we engage folks and how actually we can work to dismantle some of those systems. So we do things like an anonymized um, uh, screening process. So we have one person who anonymizes all the resumes. That person is not on the hiring committee. So the hiring committee then gets a bunch of resumes that don't include someone's name, um, where they live, where they went to school, all things that um, I think uh, are not equally distributed in society, access to those things, uh, particularly around where someone goes to school and post-secondary education, where someone lives, but all could potentially present barriers to, to folks for accessing employment. So we um, remove all of that stuff and really focus on the qualifications associated with the job. Far too often, I think, organizations and businesses throw on must-have degree in this, whereas... Um, you know, I've never heard someone say in a workplace, put that down, you can't do this part This part of the job because you don't have a degree, uh, you don't have a general arts degree. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so we remove all of those things that act as barriers that folks aren't necessarily thinking about when they're posting those jobs and actually prioritize that we would like to hire folks with lived experience because those are the folks that um, most importantly we need in, in our work uh, to address the issues that um, folks have experienced. And I, I feel um, that that's so important because I feel like as a leader that's experienced uh, food insecurity uh, and hunger, you know, uh, it's really changed the way that I look at this work. And I think challenge is a bit of, um, you know, not only white supremacy, but a middle class bias that permeates much of um, the interventions that have been designed in the space. I guess I also should have uh, asked this at the beginning, but um, could you tell me a little bit about the history of FoodShare and like when and how it got started, mm -hmm. all that? <laughs> you bet. FoodShare started in 1985. Uh, we got a $20,000 grant from the city of Toronto um, uh, in response to emerging hunger issues in the city. So it started off as something called the Hunger Hotline. People were able to call, a, um, call us and then get um, information on where their local closest food bank was, any type, any type of those kind of resources. And it just continued from that kind of investment of $20,000 that allowed us to hire a half-time person uh, to now an organization with closer to 100 people uh, and a $7 million budget. You know, we've really um, just sought to be able to demonstrate in a variety of ways that it is possible for people to access the food that they need. Um, there is a role for a community to play in that. So over the years, we've just developed and tested and um, toyed with a bunch of different interventions from the mobile um, uh, produce truck um, to the markets to a whole host of things that kind of disrupt the way that people typically access mm -hmm. um, a food. One of the big things we started was the Good Food Box in 1994, um, and in the last few years, we've really revised it to reflect kind of what we've learned about who was purchasing it um, and the like. Um, you know, uh, when I think about our work at FoodShare, I actually think about something that opened four years before FoodShare opened. It was in 1981 that Canada's first food bank opened, um, and FoodShare kind of evolved in response to that in 1985. And I really think about our work in ways that um, depart from the traditional food bank model. One, we don't give out free food. Um, but two, a couple of things that are really key to us. One, we recognize that everyone has a right to food. Um, the federal government ratified the right to food in this country in 1976. So our work is to help the government ensure that everyone has access to uh, their right to food. And we also recognize that traditional notions of charity, um, so... Um, you know, largely what it's looked like for years, middle class white folks uh, or, or more wealthy white folks in neighborhoods um, coming into low income communities and giving out leftovers um, to, to 
hungry folks. So that's not what we do. We actually realize that the interventions that we design have to be um, led by community if they are going to be effective and if they are going to respond to the needs of folks in that community. So one of the things we do, we do a lot, and I'm never able to mention all of the things we do, but we do a lot. And I would say one of the big things we do is we work with over 50 communities across the city of Toronto to develop what we call uh, our, uh, what we call good food markets. So these are uh, subsidized produce markets, uh, kind of like farmers markets, except uh, quite a bit cheaper. Um, and in spaces where low-income uh, folks uh, connect, often in things like Toronto community housing buildings, uh, they'll be set up. So 50, 50 of these markets across the city, but they're not staffed by someone outside of the community. They're staffed by someone who said, you know what, in my neighborhood, we've got a problem with access to affordable produce, and I want to be a part of the solution. So our work is really not to go into communities and hand out leftovers at all, but instead work alongside communities that are wanting to advance change and we can support them and use our uh, capacity as a large food organization that grows a lot of food, buys a lot of food uh, to help these communities set up markets. So we do markets, we do urban farming, we have uh, a couple of farm sites, one on a rooftop um, at Eastdale Collegiate and another one at Burnham Thorpe Collegiate Institute out in the field. And really what we're doing is, yes, we're growing food, we're hiring youth, but we're also providing employment opportunities for folks. And I think for me, that is the, the really significant piece because food, insecu- food security comes down to income in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So being able to put uh, cash in people's pockets, I think, is key. Yeah. So those are some of the things we're doing. We also have um, what I call a food truck that sells produce. Um, so a, um, a decommissioned wheel trans vehicle that we then um, had redesigned to be able to sell produce produce so that goes into communities as well and sells uh, sells produce we do workshops in schools um, and then we're also really heavily involved in student nutrition work so uh, over 200,000 kids in the city of Toronto access um, a, a meal in their schools uh, through one of the programs that uh, Foodshare helps develop and when you're setting up the urban farming, what does that look like? Good question. Similarly to everything we do, it's working alongside the community. You know, we recognize that um, we have some capacity. Um, we've done this work for a long time, so we can certainly support and help communities along this journey. But ultimately, we're not interested in developing more and more farms and things like mm-hmm. that, just so food share can have more and more farm sites. So really, it's about developing. Um, uh, food growing spaces alongside uh, members of a community and making sure that it's being set up in such a way so that when food share steps back or Mm -hmm. um, is less visible in the project that the community is well set up to continue to uh, uh, grow the the initiative um, and that it becomes an actual community food asset Mm -hmm. and not an asset of food shares. Yeah, Yeah, that's I think like one of the most I don't know, I guess important things when you're when you're like working with and helping communities is that like a lot of charity tends to be from what I've like noticed and researched like very sort of colonial in structure mm-hmm. and very sort of imposing and like sort of helps perpetuate those systems. Mm-hmm. And I guess sort of going back to what you said earlier, there's a lot of emphasis um about community in mm-hmm. in the work that you do here and I guess I was wondering if you could touch on that and sort of why that aspect of food share is so important and yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, because community leads the work that we're doing. Yeah, we're, we uh, are um, a resource to community, but we are really not leading, driving, powering this work. The 50 good food markets across the city, they are powered and led by community uh individuals and groups across the city you know we have a significant advisory committee made up of about 60 people um, who predominantly come from communities that are most likely to experience food insecurity they lead and guide the work Uh, we we uh, help make their vision possible so community is front and center in everything we do and 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 will remain such yeah and um i guess to sort of go back to to like what food share does has there been 
a specific initiative or moment or like something that you've that has been your favorite um initiative or moment in in the work you've done here and anything that stands out i guess I think um, shortly after I started Food Share, I um, actually pretty much immediately after I started Food Share, I made uh, uh, scheduled meetings to connect with as many of my colleagues as possible. And I'll never forget one conversation that I had with someone who isn't here, um, who since moved on. But they said to me, Paul, you know, food food security to me means having a good job. And I've got a good job here. And for me, that was a really pivotal moment. You know, often we're in nonprofits, we think about this work and we think about the community only and the other, and we don't necessarily think about the conditions. You know, it's almost an afterthought. And there's so often that you see nonprofits paying people poorly, overworking them, uh, over, um, and all sorts of things that are quite problematic. So that was really helpful uh, for me to realize, to be helped in realizing that a good job is key, and we've got to start within our own walls. So we've done a lot of work around what it means to be an employer and to be a supportive employer. You know, in our last um, review of our pay grid, we decided to apply a poverty reduction lens to that. So we gave folks at the bottom of the pay grid, uh, so the lowest wage workers, a 25% increase. Um, And then uh, as people went up, they got a little bit more, a little bit of an increase, except for folks at the top. So the executive director and the directors saw no increase. Um, And also we recently introduced um, a lowest paid to highest paid wage ratio of 1 to 3.7, which means the highest paid worker at food share can make no more than 3.7 times that of the lowest paid worker. One of the ways we challenge uh, income inequality. So in doing that uh, in our organization and challenging and encouraging other organizations to adopt uh, um, a kind of a decent work agenda uh, within their their walls, I think has been really important to us. Mm-hmm. And we recognize if food is about income, the more employers that we can convince to create good jobs, including in the community food sector and everyday businesses, the better off that we are. Um, okay, and I guess this might not be the easiest question to answer. I have no idea what the answer to this question no is. Um, but in an ideal world, if you can picture a food system that works... Mm-hmm. Um, for everyone, mm-hmm. what would that look like, and how, even if we even can, mm-hmm. could we get there? Good question. So, what does that? So, I think we were um, as a as a nation, we were on the right track. You know, in 1966, when the right to food was first introduced, and in 1976, when it was ratified. Um, but we went amiss somewhere. Because we went from ratifying the right to food in 1976 to now having over 4 million people that are food insecure. So I think we actually need to go back to the right to food. What does that mean? Well, obviously it doesn't mean that the government is going to be giving out free food, but creating the conditions to allow people to access the food that they need. So... You know, uh, I see um, policy interventions having a significant impact on people's ability to access food. And the types of policy interventions that I think are going to have the most impact are ones around income. So when we see the provincial government, the current provincial government, roll back a planned increase, uh, the, the, incre- the planned increase to minimum wage that was meant to go up to $15, that's actually taking us further and further away from our ability to actualize our right to food. So we would love to see some solid income-based interventions. In an ideal world, we wouldn't be talking about minimum wage anymore. Um, you know, to just wrapping our minds around the fact that we have what is the minimum that we can pay so that an employer can pay someone, but yet no conversation around maximums that people can earn. So, in an ideal world, we're using policy, which is funded through taxation. Um, to uh, to ad- address things like poverty and food insecurity, we should be talking about living wages. We should be talking about a universal basic income. Those are some of the things that will help people access the food that they need. We should be talking and recognizing um, a dis- um, dismantling systemic racism. Um, and those are the things that are going to have a big impact on making sure that people have the food that they need. And I, and I want to note that you know any in- income-based interventions 
conditions need also apply to um, uh, migrants who are here working, um, especially migrant agricultural workers who are um, a part of our food system that we often don't talk about. Uh, you know, we like to say, you know, every in this you know, country, people talk a lot about local food, um, but local food isn't inherently more just, and we might not be flying food thousands of miles, but we're flying people thousands of miles, and we're treating them uh, quite poorly and legislating their poverty. Um, so for me, uh, living in a world where people have access to the food, and the food is grown uh, and nurtured by folks who are also nurtured and have access to, to the food that they need. Um, and I guess my sort of last two questions, uh, the first one is, how can people get involved in this? Yeah, so I, a number of things. If someone wants to get involved in our work and support food share, they can purchase a good food box. Um, every good food box that we sell um, helps us do the work that we do. Um, so you can have a box filled with produce for as low as $16 delivered to your front door. So if you search uh, the good food box, food share's good food box, you'll see that pop up. I got mine a couple of days ago. It was packed with grocery, with wonderful produce. Um, so that's one thing p- folks can do to support food share. But folks are living in communities where they're struggling and feeling like, oh, my goodness, there's uh, four places where I can buy Doritos, and that's great. But I also want to be able to buy um, apples and bananas, and we don't have that really in my neighborhood. Well, we're happy to work with those folks to help set up good food markets um, and the like. And then, you know, if folks are... Um, they can also just uh, get in touch and come and uh, help out uh, and volunteer. We're always um, willing to engage volunteers. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And where can people find uh, like social media or anything? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So people can find out more about us on our website at foodshare.net. But we're also on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram and probably more things than I'm now forgetting. <laughs> um, and I guess my last question, what is your favorite go-to comfort food? Ah, you know, I like things that are roasted. So I love a good roasted chicken, actually. And uh, I think that goes so beautifully with some mashed potatoes and gravy. Yes. Yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> something green on there so. yeah. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> all right thank you so much <laughs> uh, my pleasure thank you thank you to our guests selva and paul taylor and to my co-hosts mika and sabrina and to saba for working the soundboard today and most of all thanks to you our listeners we'd love to hear from you you can find us on twitter at hh podcasting and instagram at hardhouse stories we're here every Saturday at 7 a.m. on CIUT 89.5 FM, and we post all of our episodes under Hardhouse Stories on SoundCloud. Our intro-outro music was composed by Dan Driscoll. I'm Ari, signing off as your host for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.